Clean Slate New Ideas for Justice and Democracy. It's episode two. Today I'm going to talk about the only time inequality, economic inequality, ever got better. And it was called the Great Compression. And it set the stage for a global post-World War II boom. And how it happened bears remembering. When we talk about income inequality or wealth inequality, it's kind of a vague term. Really, what we're talking about is concentrations of income or concentrations of property ownership, which is to say, you know, one person has much more income or owns much more than somebody else. And there's also two ways of making a living, which is also really important. One is you can, uh, you can make a living from working, as most people do, or you can make a living from owning as few people do. And that's a very important distinction. So when we talk about inequality getting worse, we're really talking about the fact that more and more income and ownership is in fewer hands. From the Second World War until about the mid-1970s, when the economy grew, workers tended to share in the benefits of that growth. So let's say the economy grew by 3%, your company's profits grew by 3%. If you were a worker, you would also get an increase, maybe 3%, maybe not. But it meant that everybody in the entire economy was doing better as the economy do better, did better. Since the late 1970s, especially, and the early 1980s, many incomes have stagnated and wages for some have even dropped, while the wealthiest folks have broken away from the pack. So sometimes when the economy as a whole grew, inequality grew as well. People at the bottom and middle might be making a bit more money, but the people at the top were getting richer faster than the rest. In fact, inequality has only ever improved once during what is called the Great Compression. And that was back between 1938 and 1945. It did not begin with what are called the capital losses of the Depression. The Depression started with a massive um, stock market crash where stocks dropped by an incredible amount of their value. But the Great Compression didn't start till many years later, almost 10 years later. It does coincide with a second recession and the second New Deal of the late 1930s. So at that time, during the Great Compression, not only did wages rise for most Americans, the share of overall income of the top earners shrank as well. As Paul Krugman writes, quote, the middle class society I grew up in didn't evolve gradually or automatically. It was created in a remarkably short period of time by FDR and the New Deal. As the chart shows, and you can see the chart on the post, the only time inequality ever got better on my Substack. As the chart shows, income inequality declined drastically from the late 1930s to the mid-1940s, with the rich losing ground while working Americans saw unprecedented gains. Economic historians called what happened the Great Compression, and it's a seminal episode in American history. The concentration of monopoly power was the subject of a really incredible speech by FDR in, in 1938, and I'll add that to the links in this podcast. It dealt at length with many of the very issues we're dealing with today. Uh, the fact that most stocks were owned by a few people, um, that you had a huge concentration of monopoly power or oligopoly power, and that made competition difficult. So to deal with unemployment, inequality, and exploitation, the government pursued a whole series of different policies. 
Ellen Ruppel Shell wrote a really great book called Cheap, uh, which wrote, and she wrote in that she wrote, quote, prices were fixed to prevent large retailers from forcing smaller ones out of business. As part of the New Deal, the National Industrial Recovery Act set codes of conduct for business, including guidelines for hours worked, wages paid, and fair trade practices. Low prices, it was feared, would force a dip in wages and profits, pushing more businesses into bankruptcy. So a number of other measures were introduced to prevent what we would call exclusivity deals and predatory pricing. A strike in Detroit had resulted in the formation of the United Auto Workers, and as car unions won successfully larger concessions for their membership in the mid-1930s, Detroit ranked first in the nation in private home ownership. There's an interesting perspective here that Shell brings in. Um, because, as she says, World War II blotted out this happy picture with a double whammy of scarcity and inflation. There was little on offer, and what was available was priced out of reach for most Americans. So car manufacture came to a halt in 1942 to make room for the war effort. The price of textiles shot up by nearly 30%. The cost of farm products, more than 40%. While before the war, the government had set legislation to keep prices from falling too low, In 1942, the Office of Price Administration and Civilian Supply required merchants to set ceilings on the price of what eventually grew to be 90% of all goods. There was rationing of rubber, sugar, gasoline, heating oil, milk, coffee, soap, nylon stockings, and even used cars. Waste was reviled, and recycling was elevated to a patriotic duty. Interestingly, despite this enforced frugality, most Americans managed to live well, far better than they had in the Roaring Twenties, when there was enormous income disparity. In 1944, the average factory worker's pay had grown by 80% in five years, while, thanks in part to government-imposed price controls, living costs had only climbed 24%. And in 1945, personal savings reached an astonishing 21% of disposable income, compared to a mere 3% two decades later. In fact, Those were the conditions that made the post-war recovery possible. During that time, during that Great Compression, the entire tool stock of the U.S. was doubled at public expense. That's because there were so many investments going into manufacturing and R&D that the result was the U.S. again doubled its capital stock, its manufacturing stock and its tool stock at public expense. Many years later, writing in 1976, Arthur Oaken, who's an economist, said, quote, the relative distribution of family income has changed very little in the past generation. The nation took one big step toward equality during World War II. Throughout the post-war period, the top income groups have received a substantially smaller share of income than they had in the prosperous years of the 20s. Now, this is about, just about to change right after this in 1976. But to recap what happened during the Great Compression, a period of scarcity, inflation, recycling, rationing, regulation, and high government spending had the result of marking the only major decrease in inequality in U.S. history, with people making more money and saving much more. What's more, trade was severely disrupted, to say the least, as supply lines to countries who supplied raw materials as well as manufactured goods were cut off, and there was no free movement of people across borders. That really tells you something about how different that economy was, but also what 
is different about what we're taught about the economy and what it achieves as opposed to the theories that we, uh, that we um, put into place. Now, another reason for the Great Compression was a progressive income tax. Switzerland never had a progressive income tax and never experienced uh, compression. Writing in 2006, Atkinson and Piketty point out that, quote, the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada display a substantial increase in the top 0.1% income share over the last 25 years. This increase is largest in the United States, but the timing is remarkably similar across the three countries. In contrast, France and Japan do not experience any noticeable increase in the top 0.1% income share. As a result, income concentration is much lower in those countries than in the English-speaking countries. The Second World War also resulted in a whole series of innovations in science, physics, aviation, communications, computing, medical technology, as well as organization and governance. Many were the result of the existential threat posed by the war. The atomic bomb, radar for detecting and firing on enemy aircraft and ships, computing to break codes. The other was the necessity of developing alternatives when imports were unavailable. So methadone was developed as an alternative to morphine when supplies of opium from the East were cut off. The creation of the middle class in North America and elsewhere apparently occurred due to the opposite of all the things that are supposed to create prosperity for all. High government spending and taxes, including deficit spending, high amounts of regulation, severe restrictions on trade. The usual story is just to say, well, the Second World War ended the depression for FDR, but this makes a mistake. Organizing and prosecuting a war takes a fair bit of competence. And the other is that the Great Compression clearly started before the direct involvement of the U.S. in the Second World War. Germany invaded Poland in September 1939, but the U.S. did not declare war until December 1942. The Great Compression started before both of those events in 1938. The question now is how to deal with inequality if this is something that governments are really going to be serious about. There is a focus now on what is called equitable growth, sort of going back to the kind of economy we had after the Great Compression, when, when the economy grew, it grew for everybody. But that has challenges too, because how do we actually do that without unwinding some of the concentrations of wealth or some of the concentrations of income that we're seeing right now? So if we want to try to find ways to return to a capitalism in which when worker productivity went up, the economy grew, and so did income and wages, how do we shift to equitable growth if it isn't actually going to do anything to reduce inequality. The market itself may reduce inequality if there's another serious market crash, which is not out of the question. The Great Depression was not just a stock market collapse in 1929. It also involved property. It was real estate. Um, a second downturn happened several years later in 1938. And while few people think that 2008 can repeat itself, there is a huge amount of global uncertainty, especially after the pandemic, but there was a fair bit before as well, especially about debt levels in the international economy. The reason the issue of inequality matters is, of course, that it affects the economy. The main reason we're seeing economies sputtering is because there's no demand. But the other thing about it is that in our current economy, people are wondering, why is it that we're seeing so much turmoil? Why is it that we're seeing so much anger? And it's because the vast majority of people's wages and incomes are stagnant and they have to turn to debt, either to supplement their income or they're already drowning in debt 
In the States, it can be medical debt, but in Canada, it's uh, home debt, it's mortgage debt. And if wages and incomes don't rise, people can't spend on consumer goods, they can't pay back their debts, and they worry about losing their homes or the businesses. It shouldn't be a surprise that we're seeing this level of anger and distress when we are seeing, when we, uh, central banks crank up interest rates the way they are while we have massive debt levels. Now, there's also an idea that even if we fight inequality, that it may somehow makes the economy less efficient. That there's actually an argument out there, basically based on um, uh, an economist named Vilfredo Pareto, who I'll get to later, that growing inequality is efficient and fighting inequality is inefficient. But that isn't based on anything to do with the use of resources or money or anything else. But the idea that even if we fought inequality, it would be a bad idea. And the entire problem in our economy is that we're not actually working for growth. We're working to pay off debts. We need to take a better look. We need, we need a kind of economics that recognizes the role of banks and debt and the challenges that that creates for businesses as well as individuals. And we're not doing that right now. That's the other way in which the Great Compression shows us that it really defies the theory. It shows that the theory around economic growth may not be right. You can improve people's financial well-being without being wasteful. You can do it by making the most of every drop of fuel and scrap of metal and every person's effort and time. There is a strong link between poverty and environmental degradation because low wages make ruinous environmental exploitation possible. In fact, they encourage it. They make it profitable. The other thing about this is when you talk about the Great Compression, because so often when you talk about ideas, plans, policies that the government want to, will bring in, people act as if you're going to bring this thing and it's going to be that way forever. And that is not what the Great Compression was at all. The aspects of the Great Compression were temporary, those policies, and they were lifted when the war ended. So the National War Labor Board, the NWLB, was established in January 1942, and it was dissolved in December 1945. It was responsible for approving all wages, all wage increases and decreases after the Stabilization Act, also known as the Price Control Act of October 1942, made any wage change illegal without its approval. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot to be asking of an economy. That's a lot. Clearly, when you're part of a global conflict, people understand the need for sacrifice. But that regulation ended abruptly with the end of the war. And the positive effects lasted for decades. People think of the post-war era as being one defined by growing prosperity, but it was because people were reaping the benefits of the Great Compression. Now, there are all sorts of reasons for arguing why the Great Compression could not happen again, and we would want to avoid a crisis that would necessitate extreme measures like that. Absolutely. But it still shows that ever-growing inequality is not inevitable, that we can choose a different path. And if we do choose a different path, even temporarily, that you can have enormous gains in a fairly short period of time in advancing the prosperity of your country and your economy. Because with a mix of wartime spending, wage and price controls, strategic use of resources and rationing, unemployment went down to 2%. And while inflation went up, wages went up faster. 
which is another critical aspect of it. The tool stock of the entire country doubled, all of it paid for by government, and by 1945, the average American worker was saving 21% of their income. That's how the middle class was created, and the same thing happened in Canada. Whether it was deliberate or not, it effectively ended up wiping out people's personal debts, especially when we're so concerned right now about the middle class and the working class being eroded away. Now, the other question, the big question is, how is this paid for? 50% of the U.S. war effort was paid for through new taxes. 35% that were, were bonds that were borrowed and repaid. And 15% were through Federal Reserve bond purchases. That's according to the Institute for New Economic Thinking. So half of it was paid for with new taxes. 35% was debt. And 15% was a central bank buying bonds, if that's called a monetized deficit. But it's a way of pumping money into the system where the money would not be there otherwise. And the result was, of course, that the U.S. won the Second World War. This era, after this, from 1945 to 1975, was called the golden age of capitalism. There was impressive growth among developed and developing countries alike. And again, while inequality did not get appreciably better, the high growth of that period was more equally shared. So the rising tide lifted all boats. It lifted people out of poverty. It lifted people up into the middle class. And, and what we've been seeing since then, just after this, 1978, is that all started to unwind. So the important thing is to always remember, not only was there a period called the Great Compression that created the middle class in North America, it was the only time inequality ever got better. And the way that happened is really, really important, especially when we consider now what we want to be doing, what we're trying to do to achieve a better deal for working in middle-class Canadians and working in middle-class people around the world. There are things we can do. It just means that we have to be a little more imaginative. And I'm not saying to bring back all the measures of the Great Compression, which I'm sure somebody will say, that's not what we need to do. But the most important thing is to focus on being efficient in our use of people, by which I mean making the most of people's time, mo making the most of the energy and resources that we all have. And that really is what the Great Compression was about. It was about being strategic in your use of resources and focusing much more on what really mattered which at the time was survival. And I do still find it inspiring simply because it shows us these things can be done. And they were done in our country. That's something to keep in mind. People always say, you know, if you don't remember the lessons of the past, you're doomed to repeat them. Well, this is a lesson from the past we should really heed. That's it. Thank you so much. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, do sign up. Consider a paid subscription as well. Uh, we've been getting great support. Thank you so much from for everybody uh, for your encouragement. Thank you so much, and take care. Bye.